Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get started with episode 10. Yay! Woo! Pop bottles for it. <laughs> episode 10, what a milestone. Definitely. I think after this episode, we could stop saying We can stop the saying that. I know. Actually, I'm probably never going to stop saying that. No, because this is all so exciting still. Yeah. Oh, Every episode be... is, is, is a, you know, celebration for us. Yay. So. Yeah, we're just happy to be here and super excited to be discussing Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking as our way of starting 2022, as a way on reflecting on the past couple of years. I thought that this book was a great way for us to take a moment to pause, to reflect on all of that, looking mm-hmm. back, but also looking forward, finding ways for us to connect with a writer who writes something so unbelievably raw and this book is about grief and we'll give you a little bit more of a summary obviously but that's just kind of our 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 initial reasoning for for choosing this and just as important is the amazing wine selection which we're super excited about and I just want to say I'm super excited about because I haven't been able to drink anything for like <laughs> like over a month so what an honor to be able to have a glass of wine for the first time in so long and for it to be so delicious so good we have um a Grenache by Raft Wines they're out of California our friend uh our our Uncle Drew. Uncle Drew. <laughs> in California introduced us to this wine and um, the winemaker, and it's just really delicious. And there's many reasons why I paired it with this book, and we'll dive into that shortly. But yes, we are enjoying thoroughly, and it is a proper wine to be drinking post-surgery. Yep, yep. It's a celebratory occasion. Um, but you know, let's let's dive into just a quick summary of, mm-hmm. of, of Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. This is a book that won the National Book Award in 2005, so we're definitely looking back a little bit. And Joan Didion sadly passed away just a couple of weeks ago, no. so we wanted to honor her. We had already chosen this book <laughs> to start the year. I know off. it was so, sad. so. It was sort of. Um, I was terrified. I was like, "Oh my god, did pouring over pages manifest this? Like, what? <laughs> what the hell is going on?" But we thought this was a good way to honor her and her incredible career. And you know, we're also really happy to share other books and essays by Joan Didion that we love, and we can do that on Instagram. But we wanted to start with the Year of Magical Thinking because this is the first book that I ever read of Joan Didion's and read back in 2016 or 2017, I can't remember, but rereading it now for the purposes of this episode, it really proved the point that this is a book that ages really beautifully because Mm -hmm. as we experience different things in our lives and as we mature, we also have very different perspectives on grief, on loss. And this book was, it felt new Mm -hmm. to me. Because I now have such a different view on life than I did even just a couple of years ago, you yeah. know, and that and that's liberating too. It it functioned for me as a sort of self reflective tool, which we've talked about how important that is. So I enjoyed it. I felt like it was a new experience for me. And the year of magical thinking is Joan Didion's memoir. It's very short. It's about two hundred pages. You read through it pretty yeah, a quick read, pretty quickly for sure. And it's about a very particular moment in her life. So when you think memoir, don't think I was born in nineteen whatever. No, this is about a very short period of time, and this is about when her husband John Gregory Dunn passed away. And when her daughter, Quintana, was in the hospital. And even though Quintana also passes away shortly after this book was was written, um, she doesn't make mention of it. I We watched a documentary recently about her on Netflix, and it turns out that she had the opportunity to include that yeah, in the manuscript, mm-hmm. and she chose not to. That this went to the editor, I think, in October, and Quintana had died just a couple months prior. She chose to keep this book as it was, as she had written it and focus on that particular moment in time. So as I mentioned, this is a book about grief. It's a book about loss from a very, very personal perspective. And despite it being so specific and so personal, it still, I think, feels relatable and raw and 
difficult to get through at times, but necessary. Yeah. No, and, and I love this book. Um, I had never read any of, of Joan's work before, and um, I enjoyed it. She writes beautifully. She writes so well and just really puts you into the headspace of you're in her head, really, and, and, and going through the story with her. And, yeah, I found it really interesting and, and clever that she only – selected that one year to write about most people you know she had a very full and fabulous life she had yeah friends in hollywood this you know spielberg and you know anna winter and all these fabulous Warren people Beatty had like a huge crush on yes. her <laughs> all these fabulous people in her life between california and new york yet she chose to write about this one really dark moment in her life a very life-changing moment in her life and i think that says a lot about her yeah, and I think it's it emphasizes that it takes one moment or one year of your life or one defining moment to change the course of mm-hmm. your life and change your perspective. I think that's what she was trying to tell us. At least yeah. I would like to think that that's what she was trying to tell us. And as you mentioned, you're in her head mm-hmm. in this book. I mean, this is very much to me the book felt repetitive sometimes, yeah. but it was for a very particular purpose, which is these are the thoughts that I had over and over again, right? Like you're in her head and she mentioned some of the same things and the questions that she asked herself. And, and what I thought was the most fascinating was how she emphasizes what grief can do to a person, like all the confusion that she felt. Yeah. Um, I think specifically of when she didn't want to get rid of her husband's clothes because what if he came back, he was going to need his clothes. Yeah, exactly. No. And, and her going through each scenario, and replaying it in different ways is very much just showing you how we think on a daily basis. Like you're, this is a very lesser example, but you're at work and you're in a meeting and someone says something snarky and you say something, but it's not the best thing. And then the whole day you replay, or at least I do, you replay all the other options that you could have said in that moment in time. Right. It's kind of like you get that feeling from it, just replaying the same scene in your head over and over. Yeah, and and it's a really traumatic moment. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, I can't even imagine it. I think that that's like the initial sadness that you feel when you read the book is when you realize that this is how she had to experience her husband dying. <sighs> They're sitting, you know, in the living room close to each other. I think she's prepping dinner. The dinner's in the oven. Uh, she just poured him some scotch. Yeah. Right. Something like that. And then he sort of tumbles over, his arm is raised, and it turns out that he had a massive cardiac incident <laughs> and that he died instantly, right? Or or, or that's the assumption. Yeah. As we read the book, it turns out that that's probably, probably what, what happened. Ha- yeah, given his history. Right. And they knew he had a bad ticker, right? And, and, and this was in some way foreseen, but not really. It was still very unexpected. Yeah. So she was kind of living at least to with her, this it was fear. very exactly. unexpected. And I and I'm glad you brought that up, that emphasis, because she talks about how she thinks he knew. Yes, throughout the book, she she mentions these instances where he's like, "I need to go to Paris, or I'm never gonna go. I need to do this, or I'm never gonna do it." And she's like, "Of course, we have plenty of time to do these things." Right. But I think he in the book at one point he gets a pacemaker put in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that to him while her was a sign of hope oh we caught this it's great you'll be perfect from here on out we'll just monitor you to him it was almost a death sentence already right. like foreseeing oh this is how you're gonna die it's just a matter of, of when from your heart it was postponing death yeah it was postponing the inevitable and what's interesting is that there there are two ways to look at that there's the really drastic and dramatic way to look at it and the sort of negative way of looking at it, which is, as you just mentioned, he saw it as a death sentence. But there's also the, we postpone the inevitable every day mm-hmm. in so many different smaller ways. If you look both ways before crossing the road, you are postponing the inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 just the different degrees to which we're conditioned to believe is, is, is normal, right? And I found that, really interesting, especially from her perspective, because she starts to look back just as you described, you know, oh, what could have gone different? What if this, what if that? She starts to look back and, and realize that she has sort of like missed signs. Or yeah, she thinks, she thinks she thinks that she missed signs. And she, so she says 
um, about halfway through the book, she says, survivors look back and see omens, messages they missed. They remember the tree that died, the gold that splattered onto the hood of the car. <laughs> they live by symbols. They read meaning into the barrage of spam on the unused computer, the delete key that stops working, the image abandonment in the decision to replace it. So it's, it's all about looking back. And that made it feel so human to me mm -hmm. because that feels so relatable. We all do that. We all look back and wonder, well, what would have happened if I had seen this sign or if I had read this warning, heeded this warning? The reality is that none of those are possibilities because they were never possibilities. The yeah. only possibility is the path that you chose. Mm -hmm. And I think that we would all be healthier, happier people if we didn't look back and think, well, maybe if I would have, who fucking cares what exactly. you would have done? You didn't do that thing. It was the right decision to be made in that moment. And the way that I interpret it is that there is no such thing as like a right or wrong decision. The universe is not looking to punish you. You weren't supposed to maybe do this as opposed to that. There's only your path. Yeah. And it's not a wrong path or a right path. It's just your path. And I think inherently that makes it right. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I, I had a reflection on that recently um, just because the what ifs and the that. And, you know, the, the phrase ran into my mind, everything happens for a reason. And that is something I would say a lot. But just within the last few days, I'm like, no, everything just happens and you have a reaction and it's the way it's supposed to be. Right. It's just you don't have to look for a sign of, oh, yes, this happened because of X, Y, Z. And now this will happen to me. Like things just happen and we react. Yeah. And then the outcomes play out. Right. And that that goes hand in hand with like probably the most horrific life lesson I've learned, which is that life is not any kinder to you just because you're a good person. Yeah. It's so true. Like we like to believe that. Yeah. But life doesn't give a shit if you're a good person or you're not a good person. It's going to throw stuff at you regardless, you know? And and I've ha and I've had a lot of time to reflect over the past couple of weeks especially because everything before I had surgery felt very much like um it felt ordinary. Mhm. Mm because even the thought of having surgery felt ordinary because I had been thinking about it for years at that point. I mean, over three years. So it just felt very commonplace. I, I literally walked into the hospital and was just like ready to go. Like I didn't have nerves. I didn't stress. I don't even think I needed that like really nice cocktail that they give you before you go into the yeah. OR that like calms <laughs> you down. Like I was super chill. I didn't care about anything. Um, and then, of course, after that, everything is different. Like, my whole life is different all of a sudden. And I realize that it's different because I came out of surgery with the exact same mentality that I went into it. But, like, it was, like, five minutes before, which is, like, when they had me on that cocktail. And, you're and like, I didn't Whoa. care about anything. I came out of surgery and I was like, wow, I really don't care about anything. And I shouldn't care about anything because we only have a certain amount of, like, fucks to give and we should assign them to the things that really matter, right? Like focusing on my recovery, that matters. You know, um, focusing on my mental health and my brother's mental health, that matters. But like the slew of emails, that doesn't fucking matter. No. It's so trivial. It it's doesn't so matter. Trivial. It doesn't matter. And and you've known me for a long time. You've known that I've kind of had that attitude for a long time. Yes. But now it's like so much worse. <laughs> To the nth degree exactly. of no fucks given. A hundred percent. And and I and I feel like this book kind of like proved that to me in a way, in this like self-reflective way, because she says something that I think is really interesting. She's like, I didn't want the year that John died to end, because then I would have to look back and realize that he had died in some other year. And I thought that was a really like I would have never thought of that. This idea of like you're, you're afraid of time passing because then you have to acknowledge that time passed. Yeah. And that that person is not a part of your everyday. That reflection hit me really hard because I've been motivated for the past couple of years of like I refuse to live in a world that my brother isn't in. Yeah. And so I'll do whatever it takes. And I guess that's where my some people call it bravery. I don't think I was brave because I never felt any fear. Um, that's where that came from. 
right? Yeah, of and, course. And, and this book, even though it's about something so different, like I've experienced like the miracle of science, the miracle of giving life, the miracle of modern medicine. And she's talking about the exact opposite. Oof, in so many ways. In so many ways. And yet I felt so inspired by the book because it emphasizes life itself and that it's composed of all of these little tiny moments and that everything else trivial doesn't yeah, matter get doesn't rid of matter. it don't even think about it you don't want to answer the email don't answer the email you don't want to have the meeting don't have the meeting you don't want to go to that wedding don't go to that wedding that's it period point blank that's going to be my advice to everybody <laughs> going forward that's your pop take for this that's my pop take <laughs> do, do whatever you want do whatever you want don't, don't sweat the small stuff and just, and just don't care <laughs> You'd be surprised how much better your skin looks when you stop giving a shit about anything. That's my pop take. I love it. Yeah. No, she really was inspiring throughout all that time, especially given all the shit she went through and how she came through the other side of it. It's it's interesting how she was handling both things because one thing caused her to postpone the other. Like, Quintana, her daughter being sick, it postponed the funeral and it postponed her need to deal with yeah, the John's reality death of in that. so many ways. And, mm -hmm. and she sums that up when she's talking about the difference between grief and mourning. She says, until now, I had only been able to grieve, not mourn. Grief was passive. Grief happened. Mourning, the act of dealing, dealing with grief required attention. And that really hit me super hard because I learned very recently that recovery is also incredibly active. It's not passive. I didn't know what to expect, but I realized that if I wanted to get better, I had to walk. I had to get up. I had to drink a lot of water, even though I didn't want to. And I felt like puking. Like you have to, you, like you, it's so active. It requires you to like fight to live like to fight to get better and it's not at all passive in the way that i thought like oh you just relax you just lay yeah. there you drink some recovery water. rest right. you, you usually associate no. the two exactly and and in a way it was rest but in so many ways it was actually incredibly active and so i saw this um you know in myself but i thought it was interesting because mourning is a type of recovery mm-hmm whether you want to acknowledge it that way or not, right? Mourning is active, but it is a form of recovery. It's a form of, I think, coming back to yourself. That's what I got from her description of it. Yeah. Like you said, she had to delay everything because um, Quintana was in the hospital and, and it did delay her mourning. And then once she finally went through everything, it's yeah, what do I do now with the clothes? What do I do now with, you know, the books, the this, the that? Like, when I get home, what do I... So it really was a lot for her to actively to go through at that point in time. Even, I think it was the, the books on, on his nightstand. She didn't even want to, like, move. But she had to deal with all these these moments of John in her face and, and realize that he wasn't there anymore. And by herself. Yes. Like, without Quintana, who would have been... I assume would have been her crutch yeah. in that moment. And she describes herself just as feeling so helpless, right? Because she's trying to protect her daughter still has a chance. She can't protect John, but is still under the impression that he could come back. Yeah. He could walk through the door. And as irrational as that might sound, it's actually not irrational at all because we're used to our loved ones coming back. Yeah. We're used to them walking through the door and having dinner. And so I understood and, 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 and sort of felt her pain in that sense. But it's, I think it's fascinating how she wrote it because I don't think a lot of people have the courage to describe it in that way at the risk of sounding deranged, at the yeah. risk of sounding a little unhinged. Yeah. And, and yet, because she was so honest, it felt so relatable. And and I wanted to touch on something that I, to me was really important. And I think, I think to you was also really important, but like, this is the only book that I've read and that I can think of. And that doesn't mean that there aren't others out there, but that is a book about grief, but written not by a believer, instead written by someone who believes in 
I think everything but, you know, yes. believes in herself, believes in truth, believes in finding truth by seeking truth, believes in herself and believes in human achievement and does not talk about afterlife or God or any of these things that like I personally don't believe in. I believe that, you know, our life begins with the body and ends with the body and that that's okay, that that there's enough beauty in that, that we don't have to try and prolong it in any sort of way. But that's how I find comfort. And I think it's fascinating because I, I feel like so many of us who aren't believers in that way, and I say it with quotes because I believe in plenty, I just don't believe in that, right? <laughs> but those of us who aren't believers, quote unquote, um, didn't have something to read no, it's about true. grief before this, right? Right. No, at all. I mean, you have all those books about grief and mourning and passing and stuff that are all, you know, religious because it... Feel like they make you feel better by that there's an afterlife you're gonna get this and you'll see all your loved ones again and, and like you said it's we are birthed and then we are buried and yeah. and that's kind of, what's wrong with that the, right that's okay it's okay and i think too um i think john was irish catholic yeah. Yeah. but she never really mentioned religion on her part and i think you know that plays a lot into this book with also her journalistic approach it felt very you know, like an account of, yeah. of her like mourning. A study. Yeah, a study. Yeah. Not necessarily like a self-help book on grief oh. at all, but it does turn out to help you, just not in that way. Yeah. Which I appreciated and enjoyed her, her account because, yeah, she does seem a little unhinged in a lot of it. But as I would expect anyone who just lost their husband while making dinner. Right. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. I, th I think that it... It serves that exact purpose. It helps and it encourages and it inspires without any of the fluff that comes mm -hmm. with so many other type of books about grief and about loss because this is just a real account. This is a real woman who's expressed herself in, you know, for decades and wrote this book as, as, a, as a very prominent figure and yet she was able to feel relatable. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, yeah, sure. You know, Warren Beatty had a crush on her and she lived in a really cool house <laughs> and Steven Spielberg would come over and she's probably one of the coolest people who's ever lived. But just like everyone else, she experiences loss and she put it out there in a way that felt human yeah, and real. And I love when she talks about how mourning also has to do with mourning yourself as in who you were because you're never going to be the same person that you were before said loss and so one quote in particular really stuck with me she says for 40 years i saw myself through john's eyes i did not age this year for the first time since i was 29 i saw myself through the eyes of others well and they also never were apart never they worked together they lived together he he edited her books she the same like they were inseparable mm -hmm. so then after 40 years being faced with the reality of of this is your life alone now and, and really taking a look in the mirror at yourself that's a rude awakening yeah I can't imagine that. And and yeah, in, in the documentary, which is on Netflix, by the way, it's called Center Will Not Hold. They they talk about that, about how like their offices were like right next to each yes. other in the house and no manuscript would ever go to an editor without the other person giving it a final pass. So that to me is is such a beautiful relationship and it's also it's fair i mean i think it's perfectly fair that in the book she doesn't talk about quintana or john in any negative way no. right this book no. for her was her writing it while in mourning this was part of her mourning this book is a physical you know thing that was birthed because she was in mourning so you know, it's understandable that she wouldn't, but it's interesting that, you know, in the documentary, she does talk about, you know, John had quite a temper and Quintana had sort of mental health issues yeah. and was drinking quite a bit and, and all that stuff. And in this book, it's, it's so centered on her and her experience that I think that that made it that much more relatable. The specificity of, of, of her experience, but not the specificity of the characters that are lost. Yeah. If that makes any yes. sense. Yes. Yes, I agree because she did 
obviously talk about John a lot and Quintana within her memories, within the situations, but she didn't go off to like describe them in any any elaborate way or, or touch upon external people. There was only a couple of names here and there. It wasn't catering in that way. It was very much centered around her and her experience and how it related to her grief, which which I appreciated. And it was I think the the meanest thing she probably said in the book which isn't even mean. It was just kind of admitting that she was writing a paper or an article, I think it was, about them going to Hawaii to avoid a divorce. Yeah, yeah. And then he edited that <laughs> He line. edited it, yeah. So it's not even mean. It's just matter of fact. They're just, they were true truth tellers. Yeah, they old really, journalists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Jeez, I miss that. And that approach is so clear in this book. That approach is so obvious in this book because she is the journalist, but seeking the truth within herself. I mean, how scary is that? That's terrifying. Being so open and raw. I can't even begin to imagine it. But I think that like, that's what makes the book so powerful. It's like, we were talking about this before we were recording, but like the play by play that Mm -hmm. you get in the book. You know, it's like you're, it it feels like you're going hour by hour and then there are sort of like lapses in time and you go back in time and she talks about the house in Malibu and talks about when they moved to New York and starts talking about what Quintana's experiencing in the, was experiencing in the ICU, but at a different moment. I mean, it, it feels like it jumps around a bit. Yeah. But to me, at least, there was no semblance of confusion. No, no. And she even admits in some of the parts, like, I'm not sure if this was before or after John passed. I, I don't recall if this was after Quintana went to the hospital or not. But she makes it very, you know, clear that these things happened in an yeah. order and in a way. And that she was almost like, it was such a blur that she herself in this book is putting together the moments so that she knew what happened after all. It was her way of making sense yeah. of, of what happened. There's never a way to make sense of everything that happens. And especially something like what happened to John, which was sudden and, I mean, terrifying and almost unimaginable. And I think even in her own mind, it was unimaginable. And yet she experienced it. It's like the way that our, I'm always fascinated by the way that our minds react to trauma and how it makes sense that if you have a horrible traumatic event that you have a really bad memory of it or, or, or a spotty memory of it because Mm -hmm. it's your own mind trying to protect you from that horrible experience. Like any of us who have had any sort of moment like that will describe it to the best of our ability, but we won't really be able to tell you all that much. We can tell you like the definitive things, the things that we know to be true, but we can't describe every single detail, even mm-hmm. if we experienced it firsthand, which of course we did. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's crazy, it's isn't insane. it? insane. I'm shocked that she was able to describe the, the hospital. I know that the doctors and the social worker there talking to her like, oh yeah, she's the cool one. She's a cool wife because she's calm and not freaking out. And, and she's the cool customer. The cool customer. That's what it was. <laughs> What an asshole. Such an asshole. And she's in complete shock. Right. Such shock. Doesn't understand what's happening. You know, is standing there with no resources except for this social worker who basically tells her what happened and then calls her a cool customer for not having a panic attack. I mean, that person should have been fired on the spot as far as I'm concerned. But it's, yeah, the shock. I mean, she describes the shock. In also a, a pretty interesting way because she's as if she was sort of like processing what was happening while at the same time not understanding any of it. <laughs> I mean, how horrific. And she was by herself. And she was by herself. Yeah, exactly. And and I think ultimately, you know, I, I'm not trying to put a positive spin on a book that's very much about a really hard and traumatic moment in somebody's life. I think that's a silly thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I do think ultimately that this book is about perseverance. Yeah. I think this book is about what we become and who we become after something horrible happens or something difficult happens and how we choose to persevere and that the beauty is in the how. 
And for her, the how is not in the book. It's the book. Yeah. It's the fact that the book exists and that the book will be shared with people for generations to come as a way to make a death feel less unnatural. It's like the most natural thing. And we have conditioned ourselves to believe that it's the least natural. Yeah. We try to avoid it at all costs and all thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's terrifying because we would have to mourn who we are and we would have to mourn everything that we know about our life. Right. And, and that's what I appreciate about this book is that I think it's ultimately about perseverance. It's honest. She did not include Quintana's passing when she could have this book she felt was appropriate because it was about that particular moment in which she was grieving this death, grieving this person that she was. And this is where she felt it was appropriate to conclude. And that also tells us a lot about what she wanted to share. Yeah. And well, (laughs) this is one death that she was processing and then Quintana, or Quintana, I always mess up her name because I want to say Quintana, but I, know, I can't. I because we I speak can't. Spanish, so we get confused. Quintana. Quintana. Um, that is a completely different experience and, and compounded on this experience. I could only imagine what that must have felt like. I right. can't even imagine, honestly. It's just to be mourning and experiencing that amount of grief and then to be hit like with a sucker punch with that, I just can't even like, what would the book even end? Like if that were the case, it, it would be a completely different book. It wouldn't be of hope at all or, or persevering. It would almost be like, shit, life sucks. <laughs> can't wait. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And, and, and if she would have written about Quintana passing, then the whole point about how bad things will happen but we still have to continue because other bad things are going to also happen and we need to learn to juggle the bad things. (laughs) I think that messaging would be kind of lost, you know, because she was also coming to terms with the fact that Quintana could die. And she's very open about that in the book. She's like, I lost John and now I have to be open to the idea of Quintana also leaving. And so that limbo is also a huge part of the book. It's a part of how we understand her. So I agree. I, I, I don't know her personal reasons for not choosing to include the death of Quintana. I think that the book was supposed to serve as a very particular moment in time, a mm-hmm. reflection of that moment in time, and that there was plenty there for us to, to learn from without also having to deal with the death of her child that would have because been maybe so she emotional. wasn't ready to process that i think it was like a couple of months like i think quintana passed away in august and then the book made it to the editor in october that's not enough time no you know like that's not mourning that's not an active recovery so i think that maybe that's also part of it that she wanted to put this out the moment that she you know handed it to someone else it wasn't hers anymore. And there's a release in that. And maybe she wasn't ready to release Quintana or wasn't ready yeah. to release the idea of, you know, her life with her daughter. So there are many different theories and I think we can go on and on, but I think the book is perfect as it is. Yeah. And it also um, goes back to one of the things John said when um, Quint- Quintana was growing up that everything in the end balances out. Um, there was a anecdote with her and her friends growing up that some bad things happened to some people and others good things happened to some people. And John didn't pay much attention to it. And he's like, things all balance out at the end. Right. And everyone interpreted it a little bit differently, except for Quintana's friend. Right. Yeah. He was like, no, I know exactly what he meant. And mm-hmm. what he meant was that bad things will rain on every single one of us. Yeah. It just, it takes its time, but it'll, it'll hit us up slowly. It'll hit. It hits some people earlier than others, but it'll hit. And that was a fascinating moment, too, because you have Joan, who knows him better than anybody, has been married to him for years, for decades at that point, right? And and she misunderstood what he meant. Yeah. And yet this, like, innocent mind, this person who's looking at life, you know, as, as all children do in a very, I think, simplified, beautiful way, she understood exactly yeah. what that meant <laughs> and wasn't terrified by it just acknowledged it's truth because it's true that's that is arguably the only the only other truth 
is that bad things are going to happen to all of us. It doesn't, like I said, life doesn't care if you're a good person. It's still going to treat you like shit. Yeah. It's just how we deal with it and persevere. Yeah. The only reason in the whole everything happens for a reason, the only reason is how you reason Mm -hmm. with what happens. But no, I don't believe in everything happens for a reason. I don't believe in that. Mm. I've never believed in that. I think... I do think there's such a thing as a coincidence. I'll say that. Very rarely do coincidences happen, I think. I think for the most part, when something feels like a coincidence, it's because it was kind of meant to cross your path in a way. Like, you know, but but I would never say that everything happens for a reason because there are too many shitty things that I can't find reasons for. <laughs> it's just You're not so right. right. It's just not right. No. Not at all. <laughs> but I'd like, I mean, I'd like to just conclude the conversation about the book by just expressing my, my sort of gratitude for, for g- good journalism. Yes. And just, you know, thinking about and, and, and reflecting on how important it is for all of us to be journalists to a certain extent, like, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think people who think that they're enlightened or like awakened (laughs) are not if they haven't acknowledged that we all live in a very particularly curated bubble of information, of cherry-picked information, and of culture, because culture also informs what we believe to be true. And so if all of us learn a little something from journalists and from what it means to be a journalist. It means that we'll ask the difficult questions and it means that we'll ask the questions that sometimes even shake us to our core, Mm -hmm. the things that make us second guess our beliefs. So that way we can have stronger, more definitive, more beliefs that are, that are, that are rooted in truth. And I think that she did that with this book. I think that she did that throughout her whole career And she said herself that she found things to be less scary when she investigated them. And I think that we should all look at life that way. If you are so afraid of other people's opinions or other people's truths, then you need to think twice about the fragility of yours. Mm. And I think about that when it comes to, you know, all the book bans that we've seen recently and all this critical race theory nonsense. Oh God, yes. Um, when you, when your only option is to ban a book or to ban an idea, it's because you know inherently that your argument isn't good enough. And so I just want all of us to think about that. I want all of us to live a life where we seek truth, where we acknowledge the bias, where we acknowledge our own biases and that we can self-reflect to the point and, and, and with the incredible ability. I know that we won't, we will never live up to this, but we can try to live up to the way that Joan Didion was able to self-reflect in the year of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. I would say amen, but. <laughs> but I'm not a preacher. But I'm not a preacher. So. <laughs> Thank goodness That was a that. wonderful pop take. That was my hot other, take. Too many pop takes today from So from many. Me. I love it. <laughs> But I'm I'm excited because this entire time we've been sipping on this delicious wine. I'm gonna let you take it away so yes. that I can catch up to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and pour myself and more. pour you a little more. <laughs> it's so good. I I'm kind of fascinated by the color. The color is beautiful. It's beautiful and so interesting. It it's kind of like a. I'm, I'm looking at the the white countertop here it's kind of like so it's very pale it's a very pale I want to say garnet it has a lot of sediment in it floating but it's super super pale yeah like you would probably think it's older than it is because of how pale it is um but it is a beautiful wine so we are sipping as I mentioned on raft wines 2019 Grenache which is Super fun, super lively. And I paired this wine um, with this book because Joan went through so much shit. Only the shit you could deal with with a good support system to get through. And the definition behind raft is one, 
a community of waterfowl-like ducks, and I'll get into why, why she picked that, but two, a community of friends and family that are there to keep you afloat, which I think Joan really needed within that time, as it was a shit-awful time. Yeah, we didn't talk about that really in the discussion much, but in the book, she does emphasize a lot of these people, a lot of the people who who were family, but also friends who were her raft and who brought her food, make sure, you know, that she was eating, made sure that she was feeling, you know, hopeful and confident and, and encouraging her to get rid of John's clothes, etc. Right. So the raft is very present within the book. We didn't emphasize it because I think in other discussions, we've emphasized like the importance of female friendship yeah, and all these yeah. other things. But in the book, you really, I think, get a really great sense of exactly that. So, you know, for that reason, this wine is is, is an ideal choice. Yes. So founder Jennifer Reichardt is a millennial badass. She's um, out of Sonoma. She started Raft Wines in 2016 from the feeling of joy, a joy for the land, a joy for the wine and, you know, keeping good wine on the table with food. So her journey revolved around the table in the community that she shared. Her family had been in the food industry um, in California since 1901, specifically raising ducks. They were duck farmers. Um, so that's why the, the first definition of raft um, comes from. But they were in the Bay Area. So it makes all sense. And she started her winemaking journey in 2011. Uh, that autumn, she completed her first harvest in Sonoma County, California. And over the next few years, she started traveling, completing different harvests from down to Chile, Sonoma Coast, Australia, and back. So she was really gung-ho learning all about the process and and eventually making you know her own wine label so raft wines is based in sonoma county but she sources grapes for her wines all over vineyards in california so el dorado sonoma mendocino and other counties so the wine we're tasting today comes from the narrow gate vineyard in el dorado el dorado is located in the foothills of the sierra nevada mountains which benefits from these cool breezes that come um, for the wines. It pushes the hot air off the vines and it goes down into the valley. So this topography in these mountains create all these very unique microclimates. So you could really experiment there with the grape choice. And that's what she did. She picked a Grenache, which is an old world grape. You could find it in Bordeaux and Rhone, Germany, Italy, and Spain. So it's really interesting when you see old world grapes in the new world like California and see what the, the winemakers take on them are. And as you guys know, we're all about sustainability and knowing that people are caring for the land. So uh, Jennifer loves the couple who farms this vineyard, Frank and Tina. They planted the property in 2001 and in 2007 converted to all organic, Demeter certified biodynamic, and they're involved in every aspect of the farming. So they're very careful about the pesticides. Well, they don't use pesticides, but, you know, avoiding pesticides, uh, replenishing the land, being sustainable, creating, um, you know, diverse cover crop and animal husbandry, just so that whatever they're taking out of the land, they're putting back in different ways so that we have these vineyards for generations and generations to come. So that's very important to us. And we love it. So... We are, let's, let's get some more tasting notes. Um, so this Grenache is so lovely. It's, it's delicate. It's playful varietal. Um, it originates from Northern Rhone and the bottling of this is hundred percent Grenache and it's a great take on the California version. It's, it's fresh and it's light and it's fun. And I mean, you could drink it now, obviously like we're drinking, but you could also hold it and see how it will evolve for years to come. And I think that's, you know, beautiful in and of itself. So let's, let's sip. I mean, the first thing I mentioned to you when you were pouring it, cause you poured my glass, you're so polite. You poured my glass first. <laughs> and the first thing I said to you was, oh my God, look at that color. And then I took a sip of it and I was like, oh my God, strawberry. It's so, delicious. so fresh. It's so fresh. It's all yeah, like strawberries, raspberries, yes, super it's, ripe. it's juicy, mm -hmm. but it's light. Yeah, very light. Um, it's like a little floral note, slightly floral, but mostly, yeah, a lot of red, ripe, 
bursting fruit yeah. there. It's delicious. And um, this is 25% whole cluster, um, which shows up structurally in the complexity of it, which means so uh, literally a cluster of grapes. They take it and they press that and ferment that. So it's not like picking the grape off of it. It's the whole the whole thing just thrown in there. And you could see that a lot with these natural wines. This is the natural wine, but not like in that douchey way, in a very well-made way. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Um, and yeah, on the palate, you know, all the fresh fruit and, and, you know, complexity goes to the palate. There's nice tannic structure. It doesn't completely dry your mouth. I would say like medium, a little light bit, to yeah. medium tannins, yeah. nothing crazy. Um, I would say it's like medium acidity, medium plus acidity, just judging by, uh, by the little pause mm-hmm. of time it took before the saliva rushed out of my mouth. Right. <laughs> It has a nice finish. Like, it, it lasts for a while in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The and tannins kind of do that for me. Yeah. No, they kind of last. It lingers along. So it's not just a one-note quick Mm-mm. wine that leaves your mouth and you're, you're begging for more. This lingers and you relish and enjoy it. So this bottle retails for about $38. Um, this is a very small winery. Um, they have a lot of unique... Uh, grapes I've had recently their um, Viognier was delicious we've had rosés from them before um, and I just love what she's doing she's kicking ass and oh another connection that I completely forgot about and uh, Joan talked about California so frequently and going back there and living there so I thought as a healing space yeah so I thought obviously (laughs) we gotta go back to California for this episode yeah totally no I mean the connection I mean the connection is obvious the connection is there and one of the things that I think about a lot because I'm not somebody who knows you know all that much about wine and everything I've learned has been through tasting and just expressing and figuring out what I like um I always think about, you know, okay, I'm in Miami and it's usually hot here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what do I want to drink if I'm sitting outside in the sun and it's maybe not too hot, right? It's January. It's kind of nice out. Like this feels good because it's, it's refreshing, but it doesn't feel, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's very light. It just, it feels like the right thing to kind of like drink outside and enjoy the, hot winter that we have here but right now i don't think it's hot because it's like what like 80 degrees right yeah, now exactly. so it's, it's kind of dare i say chilly it's chilly no um, it's perfect it's perfect for that it's perfect. perfect for that yeah and you could drink this um slightly chilled to which we did which we did yeah yeah you drink it slightly chilled because it's all light and fresh and and i would say this is a nice kind of a change of pace for someone who normally gravitates towards pinot noirs like me yeah, like you exactly, and you love it. I think this is a nice intro to a different um, varietal if if you're stuck in those Pinot ways. Yeah, because what I love about Pinot Noir is like I love that berry taste. Mm-hmm. I love that like especially like the black cherry, like the dark fruit, and this has that kind of you know bursting flavor of fruit, but in I think a, a more refreshing way. The yeah. strawberry hit me first. The raspberry. So it, it definitely, I think, as you said before we started recording, it's a nice transition, I think, for someone who likes Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. but maybe wants something a little um, a little more refreshing. Yeah. So I thought this was a delicious choice. It has been such a good episode, and I loved diving into this book. It, I mean, at first, when, when Maritza brought this book up, I'm like, ah, fuck a downer for the beginning of the year. She loses her husband or her daughter's in the hospital. But no, it, it really was not that. And, I, and I'm and i glad. Not, yeah, it's not. And, and it took a little bit of convincing because, you know, yeah, it's hard to start the year, I think, with, you know, a book that is very much about loss and about grief. But she describes this as her year of magical thinking, the year that changed the way that she perceives everything else. And and, and not to be super cheesy, but this is cheesy and I'll just dive in, I'll lean into it. But like for me, everything that I experienced in December and going through surgery and stuff like that has and will change my perspective of everything else that happens to me for the rest of my life. And that was sort of my beginning of my year of magical thinking. I sit yeah. here sitting across from you with a whole bunch of scabs and scars on my belly and and still unable to go to the gym. And this is my first glass of wine. And, you know, I'm still transitioning into, you know, normal life. But 
But I wouldn't want my life to be normal the way it was before. I want my yeah. life to be normal now that I went through this. This is my new normal. And and I think that every single person at some point in their life, sometimes if you're lucky, many times in your life, you experience things that turn your perspective into something completely new. And if we're so lucky to have them, we should lean into them, share them, express them because they bring other people comfort and they bring other people joy. And you become then, whether whether you know it or not, you become part of other people's raft. Yeah. And that's the way that you want to look at life. Whatever bad shit happens to you, if you write it down and you share it with someone else, that becomes someone else's survival guide. Yeah. And that's important. Super important. Oh. This is such a great book, and I'm glad we chose it. So you guys are all part of our raft. You guys are part of our raft, for sure. We're very thankful for that. So if you consider us part of your raft, make sure to follow our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, or subscribe to us. Go on our Instagram, at Pouring Over Pages Podcast, and make sure you hit that follow. While you're there, head over to our links, Uh, Sign up for the newsletter, scroll through our Etsy shop, buy yourself a cute hat or or merch. Valentine's Day is around the corner. It sure is. So get get that swag for your loved ones. And yeah, thank you so much. We're back soon. We're back soon. With a killer book. Yeah. That we both already read and finished. We already finished it. It's great for that episode. I believe we'll, I mean, she confirmed. I don't want to, we'll have a guest that could really speak to the themes in the novel and just, you know, the the homeland of the novel, which will be interesting. It'll be our second guest ever. Yeah. Because... Emma decided to kill it, and now the standard is so high that we're very picky about having guests on here because we felt like that episode was so killer. And if you haven't heard it, if you've skipped around, I recommend that you check out episode four, which was our uh, our discussion on red, white, and royal blue because we had an incredible guest, and we're super looking so forward good. to get back to that. Yeah. yeah. So... Thank you guys so much. We'll leave you with that. Thirsting for episode 11. And yes. Cheers. Cheers.